0: Welcome to the MathEd Podcast. My name is Sam Otten from the University of Missouri. And we're very proud here at Mizzou because our colleague Barbara Rees just received the NCTM Lifetime Achievement Award. You can get to know a little bit about Barbara's work in uh, this podcast with episode 1316, where she talks a little bit about her career. Um, and also at Mizzou, we're very proud that no other institution has more Lifetime Achievement Award wins than we do. It's a little feather in our cap that I'm proud to announce. Today, I'm also happy to have uh, Allison Hintz, who's an assistant professor in the School of Educational Studies at the University of Washington Bothell. Allison, thanks for being here.
1: Sure, my pleasure. Thanks, Sam.
0: And we are also joined by Kirsty Tyson, who's an assistant professor in the College of Education at the University of New Mexico. Kirsty, thanks also for joining us.
2: Glad to be here.
0: We're going to be talking about Allison and Kirsty's article that was published in Mathematical Thinking and Learning, Volume 17, and that was on complex listening, supporting students to listen as mathematical sense makers. But before we get to that article, Allison and Kirsty, I always like to start by um, going back to your graduate school experiences. So where was it that you did your grad school studies, and what was the focus of your dissertations?
1: So uh, this is Allison. Kirsty and I both got to do our graduate work at the University of Washington together in the College of Education there. And I was fortunate to study with Dr. Elham Kazemi, who was a wonderful advisor to me through my master's and PhD work. And uh, my dissertation focused on students' experiences, elementary children, uh, learning mathematics through whole group strategy-sharing discussions.
2: And this is Kirstie. As Allison mentioned, I also went to the University of Washington and I graduated from the Learning Sciences Program. The folks that were on my committee were Dr. Morva McDonald, John Bransford, Donna Kerr, and Valerie Manusov, and my focus was really the question of how does listening work in teaching and learning. So I studied how teachers and children listen to each other um, throughout sort of a week in a life in two different classrooms.
0: Um, And that topic of listening is what you delved into in the Mathematical Thinking and Learning article, so I'm curious how it was that you came to focus on the topic of listening, what really got you interested about listening, and then what was it that brought you together to work on this collaboratively?
2: The way that I came to listening was really, I was reading a, a text by Garrett Biesta, who's a philosopher of education. He wrote a text called Beyond Learning. And one of the questions he asked in that, he said, like, one of the greatest challenges facing humanity is to learn how to respond responsibly and responsibly to that which is other. And then I also think about how we do that in a world where sort of our resources are changing. And so my my response to that was, well, it might help if we started learning how to listen to each other. Hmm. And it was sort of reading that text and and having those thoughts that led me down this path of becoming a listening scholar. Just to add
1: on to that, my experience in my dissertation, I started talking with elementary children whose experiences during mathematical discussions seemed quite varied. And as I listened to them, One of the prominent themes that emerged, especially for intermediate children, was the complexities of listening to understand other people's ideas during discussion. And so it was actually through the dissertation that the theme of listening emerged for me. And at this time, Kirstie and I were both in the final stages of our doctoral programs and connected through these themes of listening in our dissertations. And interestingly enough, it was really after graduation and as we both went to different institutions that we ended up pursuing this similar line of interest. And uh, uh, grateful to me, it's kept us together over the years and has emerged into a really interesting line of uh, scholarship that's both important, really important to both of us.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And I think one of the things that I've appreciated about the collaboration, too, is that we came at listening from different perspectives, but mm-hmm. our individual research findings not only overlapped, but, but they helped us to see um, things in our own research that we weren't seeing. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's one of the, the things that helps us to continue our work is, is we have these different perspectives, but we're, we're both also deeply committed to thinking about the role of listening in mathematics education. Mm-hmm. Plus, Allison is great to work with. <laughs> <laughs> Ditto for Kirstie.
0: Yeah, and, and it's, I think it's really good that you found the passion around this topic because I do think it's very important for the field because most students, most of the time, are listening. That's kind of the activity that they're engaged in for their learning. Yeah. Um, we can't have everybody talking all the time. But listening is is a challenging area of study because it's so hard to observe the actual process of listening and to study it empirically. Mm -hmm. So I'm now curious, how did you situate your work in the literature? Because there's a lot more literature in math education that's on the talking or the communicating or the more observable parts of communication where they're actually expressing ideas. So how did you situate the work of listening in that literature?
3: Mm
1: -hmm. It's a great question. We... uh Christy and I both have a, a great appreciation for the scholars in the, in the field who have uh, both in education and in philosophy that have studied discussion and talk and listening. I was a little more steeped in the mathematical discussion literature, uh, whereas Christy brought and brings deep knowledge of some literature and philosophy. To speak to the math discussion literature We looked kind of deep within the writing about talk to notice any time listening was mentioned. So we did a review of literature. We would search for the word listening. We would pay attention to and document when it was noted, how it was noted, what was paid attention to. And it was from that review that we could see scholars and teachers were paying close attention to listening and knowing it was important, but that it was an opportunity to have this area filled out much, much more.
2: I think one of the things that we noticed also was that, in as you said, Sam, listening is, is so much a part of the work that happens in classrooms for both children and teachers, but we think of it in passing, like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm listening, or uh-huh. okay, okay, students, listen up. <laughs> and instead of just sort of passing over when listening is said, um, Allison and I both developed the habit of pausing to say, well, what does listening mean here? Mm-hmm. What does this author mean by using the word listening mm-hmm. in this spot? Mm-hmm. There is one wonderful text by Brent Davis um, called Teaching Mathematics Toward a Sound Alternative. And in that text, he, he digs deeply into teacher listening and develops a framework that we... Drew from um, to help frame our inquiry and listening. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: So, we had those three types of listening that were really useful to you evaluative listening, interpretive listening, and hermeneutic listening. Um, so, can you talk us through, just in a, in a sort of nutshell, those ideas?
2: Sure. W- what I want to say to start with is that all three types of listening I think are likely happening. Evaluative listening is probably the listening that we are used to doing the most especially in school context, and that's the listening where you just listen with a judgment. Do I agree or disagree with what was just said? Is that right or was it wrong? And I think it's some of the initial listening that we just automatically do. Somebody just said something, and what do I think about it? Do I agree with it or disagree with it? Does that affirm my worldview, or does it sort of start to interrupt that? Mm-hmm. Um the next level of listening um, would be interpretive listening um, that Brent Davis defines. And interpretive listening is really the listening for understanding. It's sort of going past the judgment to what what is that person trying to communicate in what he or she just said, and really trying to understand the speaker from the speaker's perspective. And then the third listening is hermeneutic listening, which um, some other scholars have Defined as generative listening. Um, Hermeneutic is sometimes a hard word to wrap your (laughs) mind around, so generative Mm -hmm. is sometimes helpful to think about. And that's, the the way that Davis defines it is that it's the listening in the interaction that happens where something new comes out of the interaction because of the listening that's happening. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's thinking about okay, so I'm understanding what you're saying and that really makes me think this or Hmm, when you say that, it makes me wonder about that, mm-hmm. and so and Davis talks about it is that, that is where something new and unique is born out of the interaction. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Sam, you had mentioned that listening can be a challenging aspect of discussion to study mm-hmm. because it's somewhat invisible, mm-hmm. um, and so uh, one of the things that we discovered through the study of this particular teacher, Ms. Martinez, in the uh, piece that we're talking about today, um, was that we could study listening in part by how people respond after they listen. And we learned that what we say often reflects how we were listening. So to elaborate, Kirstie's description of these three types of listening with some examples for example in evaluative listening teachers would often be listening for a particular answer so let's say in the context of a math classroom they asked a question like what's one-fifth plus one-fifth and a child says two-fifths the teacher might respond saying that's right or how many of you got that Um, and so in that way when the teacher speaks and affirms that the answer is correct, like Kirstie said, or agree with it, we can hear that someone's listening for a particular answer, uh, the right answer, same answer as what we got. And while Kirstie and I wonder about the role of evaluative listening, uh, we also we kind of worry about it a bit. We think that this kind of listening has the potential to shut down um, sense-making opportunities in mathematics,
2: I think it's an important point. I think one of the things that I found in sort of the larger dissertation study that I did was that when evaluative listening was the only type of listening that was present, okay. as, as soon as the, okay, your answer's right or your answer's wrong came about, okay. that the learning stopped, the inquiry stopped. And so okay. if evaluative listening is the predominant form of listening in the classroom, okay. uh, it, is likely that there isn't a lot of inquiry happening. Hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, this feels especially important to us in in the study of school and the study of mathematics in particular, because we're always concerned with uh, student and people's perceptions of mathematics as being about much, much more than um, accuracy and speed. And right Uh, answers. And right answers, exactly, Mm -hmm. exactly. If we think about the other two types of listening too and what it means to pay attention to what people say as indicative of how they might be listening or as, or as people ourselves who are trying to get better at the work of listening, how we might pay attention to how we respond in order to push ourselves to listen in deeper ways. Um, interpretive listening, as Kirsty said, is really allowing us to hear and understand another person's ideas. And so when we're listening interpretively or when we're listening to understand, people might say things like, um, could you say more about that? Or dig into a strategy that's being shared, such as, why did you think about 50 groups of four over here in this part of the array? Mm
3: -hmm.
1: Um, So we're asking questions to clarify, and our goal is listening to understand someone else's thinking.
0: I resonate with the interpretive listening because as host of this podcast, a lot of times I feel like what I'm trying to do is mm-hmm. just really understand what the guest is uh, saying and the, the thoughts and ideas that they had. Yes. And okay. one thing I think that I respond, one way that I respond is to kind of paraphrase or repeat back to them in a shorter version, like, this is uh-huh. what I think you were saying, and then I can kind of check with them was, you know, am I getting this correct? Because my goal is to try to right. make sure I'm understanding the ideas that they're sharing.
1: Right. So you know, you know firsthand how um, intensive it is to listen interpretively. You know, you think of the effort that goes into making sense of someone's ideas as you're listening, and, and it really helps us to see that listening is not a passive activity. It's very active, and I'm sure you are, um, you know, you're, you're working a mile a minute inside as you're trying to host th- these podcasts.
2: And one of the things, too, I think that is important to say about interpretive listening is it is a space where the speaker can really feel heard. Yes. Where mm. his or her thinking is affirmed. Even if it's a misconception, like just for somebody to, as you said, Sam, rephrase what you just said, or to paraphrase it, or just to check for understanding, did I hear that right, really it says... Like, I heard you, <laughs> right, and that can be very affirming for, uh, for the speaker, and especially that speaker is learning a, a new, like, the operations or multiplication and is starting to put together some, some initial thoughts about how numbers work together, that that can be really affirming, like, oh, somebody hears me and my ideas are important.
1: Right. Right. That's something that Kirsty's really taught me through this process is the significance of helping people, and especially young mathematicians, feel heard and -hmm. that their ideas matter, as you just said. Sam, you had mentioned repeating, and that helped me think about a body of work that's really helped us, and that's Suzanne Shapin and her colleagues' studies of classroom discussions in the math talk discussion moves that they offer. We notice too the significance in listening to understand and the roles of moves such as repeating or revoicing someone else's idea to make sure Mm -hmm. you're really understanding it.
3: Mm -hmm.
1: Just to keep going with that, so the last, the third type of listening that Brent Davis helped us think about and Kirstie was talking about, the hermeneutic or generative listening We came to understand that when someone's listening generatively in order to move from understanding someone's ideas to co-generating new ideas, um, they might ask things like, will this idea we're considering always work? Or maybe something like, what does this solution help us understand about division? And so we can hear that those types of questions to extend and through this hermeneutic listening together we can generate
2: new thinking
3: mm-hmm.
2: yeah, and another way that we came to understand the different kinds of listening is that you know, evaluative interpretive can be sort of reproductive you're reproducing somebody else's thinking whereas hermeneutic um, we, we think of as it's productive it's new thinking is emerging mm-hmm. for, the, for the listeners and the speakers even though that's a very dynamic You're a listener and then you're a speaker, you're a listener and then you're a speaker, but but that that is um, what we thought of as productive.
3: Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, I've done some studies looking for dialogic discourse from that kind of perspective, and it's very exciting to see those things happen because they are rare, but they're very cool when they happen, where it's actually like, oh, through the listening and through the discourse, new ideas are coming, you can see it building, and it's exciting as a researcher to get a glimpse on those things. My guests are Allison Hintz from the University of Washington Bothell and Kirsty Tyson from the University of New Mexico, and we're speaking about their article in Mathematical Thinking and Learning entitled, Complex Listening, Supporting Students to Listen as Mathematical Sense Makers. Um, so just so that we can dig into some of the findings from this article, if you could um, just briefly let us know what the setting of the study was and the data that you collected to analyze to then draw your findings. The
2: data that we drew from for this article Um, came from my dissertation study, um, which was set in an elementary school in the urban Northwest. It was a fourth grade teacher who'd been teaching for about five years when I did her study. Most of the students um, were from an English language learning background and also from a fairly low SES background. It was a a school where there were lots of critical needs. Uh, This teacher had spent her career at that school up, up until that point. And, you know, I, I visited about 25 different classrooms just to sort of get a sense of, like, what does listening look like when, we, when we're in schools? And I visited this teacher's classroom, and I just sat. happened to come in during a mathematical discussion. And it was just one of those, um, there's something happening here, and I want to know more about what it is. I was just on the edge of my seat the entire time. And... What, and even though the teacher didn't describe her pedagogy from a listening perspective um, through our work together we really started to think about how she listened and how that supported her students to listen
0: mm-hmm. and you tackled these two primary research questions of How do the elementary teacher and students listen to each other during a mathematical discussion? Um, And then you had the question, too, about how does the teacher support the students to listen as mathematical sense makers? So can you talk to us what you found with regard to those research questions, maybe starting just with the complex listening and the kinds of listening that you saw?
2: Well, I think one of the first things we did when we sat down with the data First, we looked through a series of mathematical lessons, and really thought like came up with one that we thought there's a lot of interesting stuff happening <laughs> in this one. I don't know how to say that more technically, <laughs> um, but it was a, a lesson segment that intrigued both Allison and I. And so, and and what we came to see is was a revelatory case where we established that yes indeed there were these three types of listening happening in this lesson segment. Um, So first we did just sort of some open coding of like what what's happening here in terms of listening and that was really as Allison said earlier looking at the responses uh, to when people spoke and, and, and we started just saying well what what's happening here and then we decided to draw on Davis's framework of okay so there's different kinds of listening here. Does, does Davis's framework of evaluative, interpretive, and hermeneutic help us to see the different kinds of listening that are happening here? And I, and I think we should say that, you know, I think we were able to establish that, yes, indeed, there is a evaluative listening, interpretive, and hermeneutic listening happening in this lesson, but we think that there's probably other kinds of listening happening, too. Right. And then also, just as, as we did sort of the turn-by-turn analysis thing, okay at this turn what kind of listening is happening at this turn what kind of listening is happening we were able to s- sort of see some patterns evaluative listening really happened towards the beginning of the lesson interpretive listening happened throughout the lesson and hermeneutic les- listening happened more towards the end the other thing patterns that really stood out were that both the teacher and the students did all three types of listening it wasn't just the teacher doing that, except I should say that the the teacher only sort of responded in an evaluative way once mm-hmm. in throughout mm-hmm. the entire lesson segment. And she spent most of her listening doing interpretive and hermeneutic listening. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. And then just to clarify, I mean, when you're making the claims about the listening, this would be people for whom you had a response or you had some sort of observable way to then infer their listening. And so, from yes. those observable ones, you can see these different ranges and types of listening. But there might also be some of the students that you didn't have a response, and so you don't know exactly maybe how they were processing it or thinking or listening to it.
1: Exactly.
2: Yes. Yeah, I, and I think I mean I, I think you mentioned it early. Like it's it's hard to study listening, mm-hmm. so, <laughs> and and so one of the ways that I think that this approach allows us is to approximate the listening that's happening mm-hmm. in the mm-hmm. classroom. I don't think we can account for all the types of listening that are happening for every student and the teacher. Right. But I think that we can say, at least based on the responses, um, as Allison said, we have some ideas about how they were listening to each other.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yep.
2: Yeah, we see that. This might come later in
1: the discussion, but there's an area where we see great potential for future work. We have ideas about how we could, uh, you know, get a fuller picture of what might be happening for. Mm -hmm. students who may not have spoken, um, and also try to think about, as Christy said, how multiple types of listening might be happening at once. Mm
3: -hmm.
0: Yeah. Then you also looked at the teacher's moves and the actions that the teacher took to support the listening. So what were the things that you really highlighted in the article about what that teacher was doing?
1: I think one of the things Christy said that, that helped me think about that is that the way the teacher, the focal teacher in this study listened was in a sense, kind of a implicit or maybe explicit model for children about what listening allows us to say in response to other people's ideas. So there was a direct correlation between the ways that this teacher listened and the ways that these young mathematicians listened And something that Kirstie's taught me, and it's a phrase that she uses that really helps me in all areas of my life, is that she said, you know, people or children listen the way that they are heard. And I think that the way that the focal teacher here listens in interpretive and hermeneutic ways gave the students language for what it sounds like to respond to better understand or co-generate ideas with other mathematicians.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: A- another thing that she does is she talks explicitly about listening with her students. And that's very curious to us and something we learned from her because as Christy said in the beginning, we can assume that students are listening, and there's a lot of time when students play the role of listener in schools, but rarely do we talk about what listeners do, and so Miss Martinez would talk with students explicitly about listening, and I'm trying to think of some of the things she said, Christy, you might be able to think of them, yeah, uh, but sh- there yeah. Is-
2: they're, I mean, like the, the one that stood out, and I think the, mm-hmm. the example that we have in the article is from a girl who, mm-hmm. who was sort of in the hot spot. I guess things were not evolving. Like she was calling on her peers, asking for their feedback to her thinking, and then just saying, okay, next, okay, next. And Ms. Martinez just said, okay, I want you to pause for a second, and I want to hear, like, are you listening to understand, or are you just listening? And the student was able to say, oh, I'm just listening. And then Ms. Martinez paused and said, okay, well, I'm going to challenge you to listen to understand. And then she talked about what that might sound like or hmm. be like. And and that is one of the ways that she explicitly talked about listening. hmm okay. And and that's one of the like one of the things is we we saw that she did a lot of helping to direct students listening mm-hmm. in terms of what to listen for. So for example, I want you to listen for understanding as opposed to just listening for mm-hmm. words to be said. Mm-hmm. This teacher
1: creates this culture of curiosity, mm-hmm. and she's ask, constantly asking questions that seem to be really genuine to her and the students
2: follow suit in that Mm -hmm. Um, and that's another area where she's fairly explicit is that she talks about with the students prior to this lesson segment she'll say okay I want you to ask each other genuine questions and then she models that and and I would say that this teacher models genuine questions throughout the day. She's mm. interest, She's genuinely interested in her students' lives. She's genuinely interested in their thinking, and she's especially interested in their mathematical thinking. She wants to understand what they understand. Mm-hmm.
0: So having uh, tackled this important but challenging area of research on listening and developing this idea of complex listening and the multi, multiple facets to it, what would you like to see with regard to the future of complex listening, either in the research literature or maybe in practice? Where would you like to see these ideas kind of go?
1: Uh, if we start by thinking about practice, um, Kirsty and I uh, are both classroom teachers ourselves, and we have deep respect for the work that teachers are doing every day. We spend a lot; we get to spend a lot of time in schools and. Um, and know the complexities that teachers are facing. So we think an, an interesting step forward to, for all of us to work in growing our practice as listeners is, you know, to consider what would it mean to think of teaching as a listening profession and how could we pay attention as teachers to the, the ways that uh, we listen to our students and how we respond to what they say We're curious to think about both explicit and implicit moves that teachers can make to create a culture of kind of robust uh, listening in classrooms. We'd love a broader conversation and practice around listening. I think part of the tension that teachers face is that this kind of ambitious listening and learning is an investment in time. And teachers can feel tremendous pressure Mm -hmm. to cover material cover curriculum and with that tension of time teachers need to hear permission from administrators and building and district level people to say if we're investing in children's learning of mathematics in these robust ways we need to give time for thinking Mm -hmm. and listening under the surface is very very complex for teachers and children um so, I, you know, starting with the idea of practice, that's what I think about. Christy, do you, what are you thinking about for
2: practice? I, I think your point about time is super important, and I, I think it—I don't know—I think it should be recognized that even in this lesson segment that we analyzed for the complex listening article, the teacher had her set math time, but then this conversation started happening, and she made the decision. She said, "I think there's a really." rich conversation happening here. And so she just continued math time into the reading time. Mm -hmm. And then it was time for kids to go to the library. And she said, okay, we're going to come back to this conversation. So they paused. They did their library time. They came back. And so she rearranged her morning schedule to facilitate having the time to let this conversation unfold. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And I think that that definitely... You know, in a, in a day and age where things are very paced in some districts where there's a real commitment to fidelity of the curriculum or what have you, that, you know, you need to be on this page on this day, it doesn't necessarily support this kind of work, but that this is the kind of work that we think supports children's sense-making mm-hmm. in, of mathematics and sense-making of the world. And so, mm-hmm. um, so I think that's a super important point. Mm-hmm. And right. and I think Allison and I are both very excited to continue this question of of what can we learn if we think about teaching as a listening profession as opposed to the sage on the stage profession yeah. mm-hmm. and not to say like it's one or the other because we recognize that you know we are always talking and listening but let's pause and really dig into the listening and what that can help us to understand about learning.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Going into ideas and further research, um, we noticed that this focal discussion happened when there was a moment of struggle, Mm -hmm. and it was a time when two students weren't really yet understanding one another's strategy for solving the same problem, and we were really curious about the way that the teacher, rather than kind of smoothing over the confusion, took up time to look into this struggle. We're wondering about further studies around um, the role of listening in supporting students in productive ways through struggle. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of thinking in math education right now around what is productive struggle. And we think it would be exciting to put listening in the center of what it might mean to um, support students through moments of struggle. Mm. And you know, more broadly, think about how we frame struggle and uh, differences in ideas, and how carefully paying attention to listening helps us think about mathematics education as kind of a moral endeavor um, as students participate in in a classroom and become citizens who participate in a democracy.
2: Mm-hmm. And that really resonates with me because it, it sort of comes back to my original questions about that led me into listening. Is you know if if students are really listening to each other in mathematical discussions where they think they're both wrong and then they end up saying like oh I understand your perspective and that helps me see things in a whole other way. Mm-hmm. Does that help students to do that in other contexts mm. in their lives? Like are they are they more able to have those? tough discussions where you're somebody who comes from a different space or place or who's somebody mm-hmm. you just really disagree with mm. does that help you to to get to an interpretive and hermeneutic stance and there's a lot of exciting work and sort of thinking about that 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 the role of difference and diversity is actually a creative hermeneutic one mm.
0: My guests are Allison Hintz and Kirsty Tyson. Um, we've been talking about their article, "Complex Listening: Supporting Students to Listen as Mathematical Sense Makers," and it sounds it's clear that you're very passionate about that work. But now I want to ask you if, in an alternative life, if you could have been passionate about something else. So, if you if you weren't in <laughs> mathematics education, uh, what would you see yourself doing instead?
1: Kirsty, <laughs> what would you be doing? <laughs>
2: You know, you sent us this list, Sam, and that was the one question I was kind of stumped on. (laughs) (laughs) Because I just, I feel so very privileged to be able to do this work. Um, I especially feel very privileged to be able to do this work in New Mexico, which is the state that I grew up in, Mm. and to really think about how we can support teachers and children to do to dig into learning and to thrive from that learning, especially in mathematics education. I don't know. uh, I always said that my plan B would be to be a ski bum. (laughs) (laughs) But so far, plan B hasn't really emerged. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know
1: that about you. That's great. I share your sentiment around getting to be in this field. It's a really a fortunate thing, and um, and I'm constantly inspired by it and in awe of the the scholars that have paved this path for Kirsty and I to be able to do this work, um, and the teachers and children that we get to learn from every day in our in our context in Washington State and in New Mexico. Um, I too am a little stumped by this, but. Uh, I, I don't know. I think one thing I, I could maybe see myself doing, I am really passionate about um, the world of adoption. We adopted mm. both of our children, and mm. um, I find myself, you know, in moments when I'm not thinking about math ed at other parts of my life, really passionate about um, sharing uh, beautiful stories about adoptions and that there's lots of ways to make families. So I could see myself somewhere in that world, mm-hmm. too.
2: Um, I I feel like we're a little bit remiss in also mentioning that we have both um, joined a group of scholars who are interested in listening. We call ourselves the Listening Study Group. (laughs) Yes. And we meet annually at AERA, the American Education Research Association, and also um, PES, the Philosophical Education Society. Oh. And we welcome others who are interested in pursuing this line of research to join us in those conversations. We'll be we'll be gathering this year in
1: Washington D.C. at ARA. Our leader is Dr. Andrea Engl- English, um, and we, like as Kirsty said, we'd we'd love people to join us in, in thinking about these ideas.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And it's an exciting interdisciplinary group. We come out mm-hmm. of philosophical perspectives, as well as empirical perspectives, and try to bring those together in panels and ongoing conversations and ongoing
3: publications.
0: (laughs) That's great. Uh, Thanks so much, Allison and Kirsty, for sharing with us today.
2: Thank you. Thank you, Sam.
0: And I also want to give a thank you to Sybilla Beckman for her generous support of the podcast. Thanks, Sibylla.